Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, with we discussion current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds of sources, plus links to the original pieces on our website. Sign up for SubChina Access, and you get all that and much more, with stories on everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China, from the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism, to China's ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands, by some estimates over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from the Seneca South Studio in downtown Durham, North Carolina. Joining me from the bucolic splendor of Middle Tennessee is the enviably thick-skinned Jeremy Goldcorn, better known as Jin a man impervious to insult, invective, libel, abuse, no matter how vicious or how thickly piled on. So check this out. Jeremy, you are a bleeping faced half bleepster, and everything you write is sping. <laughs> you have no bleeping idea what about half the bleeping you think you bleep about. So bleep off, you bleeper bleeper. Eat a bleep and bleeping die. <laughs> what a fucking ridiculous idea. <laughs> you see? You see what I'm talking about? No, no reaction save a gentle chuckle from Mr. Goldcorn. Skin of a rhino, or, or maybe of a honey badger, more appropriately. Um, anyway, I have a great deal to learn from you, my friend. Oh, my. Oh, this is ridiculous. Let's proceed with the show, sir. Yeah, yeah. So, Jeremy, last weekend, the Financial Times ran a long-form piece titled Fear and Oppression in Xinjiang, China's War on Uyghur Culture, and it was really, really good. It was indeed. Yes, yeah. So the piece opens by introducing a Uyghur woman named Golrai Askar, who lives in the U.S. now in Virginia. Uh, a few years ago in 2016, she learned that her 28-year-old nephew, Ekram Yarmuhamed, had been arrested. Uh, he would later be sentenced to 10 years on what charges isn't exactly clear, but... He was not a particularly religious guy, uh, not that that would justify a sentence, let alone such a harsh one, but uh, not far into the piece, the reader learns that Ekram's brother was sent to one of those so-called re-education camps, uh, and all of our listeners have doubtless heard a lot about those. Uh, it's a bit of a long setup, but the reader learns a few minutes into the piece why that is. The, the reporter focuses on Ekram and his brother and on the woman Golrai Askar's brother, who is a translator who works on Chinese Uyghur dictionaries. Uh, the reason for that is because their arrests and detentions were really about their role, however small, in promoting the Uyghur language and the distinct Uyghur culture. So the, this sets up one of the first, I think, in-depth discussions that I've seen in a major newspaper about the origins and the thinking behind a major change that is now apparently underway in Beijing's policy toward its Shaoshu Minzu, toward its, its minority ethnicities, uh, as some would translate it. And that is what we're going to be delving into today. The author of that piece is Christian Shepard, one of the great crop of young, tremendously talented journalists covering China these days, people with really great command of Chinese and a real appreciation for China's maddening complexities. Christian joined the FT only a few months ago, having worked previously at Reuters. Christian Shepard, we are delighted to finally have you on the show. Welcome. It's uh, great to be here. Yeah, Christian, great to have you on finally. Uh, since it is your first time on the show, I, I thought maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself. I believe you are the first international journalist, anyway, the first one I know, who actually went to school in Beijing and, and learned Chinese when you were really young. Uh, so can you tell us about that and how you ended up back in Beijing as a journalist? Sure, yeah. I came to Beijing first time around when I was uh, four years old. <laughs> yeah, very young. And I stayed here... Uh, 95. The same year as me, Christian. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was a little older. Right. <laughs> oh my God, I'm horrified to think. And then I stayed, I mean, I stayed for, for 10 years in the, in the expat bubble in Beijing, uh, mostly. Going to international school, uh, learning Mandarin as a, as a second language, but, you know, still being very much within that expat community. Uh, and then I left at, at 14, went back to the UK to this small village in North Yorkshire, entirely other end of the world from Beijing. 
and then did university in the UK and decided that I, I couldn't really stay away much longer. So I came back and did a master's degree, China studies in the University of Nottingham's Ningbo campus, did uh, an intensive year of Mandarin after that at the, the IUP program in Beijing, and then managed to luck my way into a uh, job at uh, the FT originally as a researcher, ah. helping other journalists kind of do interviews, um, you know, look through government websites, keep abreast of Chinese news, that kind of thing. And then uh, I went to Reuters, did the the politics beat there, a lot of human rights coverage, law, social issues, things like that, uh, before coming back to the FT a little over half a year ago. Well, it's great. And it's great that they gave you the room to, to do uh, a nice long story like this, which I, I believe is your first real long form story that you've done uh, since embarking on your career in journalism. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Let's dive in and talk about the real point of the story, which, if I may be so bold as to presume, uh, wasn't just to tell another story about a family that's been the victim of this draconian policy in Xinjiang, uh, though I should hasten to add that it's a really vitally important thing to be told. But rather, the point of your story is really to get into the policy change that you believe is is driving this policy of, of the of the concentration camps. Is that is that fair? Is that what you initially set out to do? Yeah, so when I had been reading and, and following and also covering Xinjiang for the last couple of years, I'd seen there had been this uh, real focus on the security aspect of it, which obviously, as you say, is, is hugely important on you know the technology and on the camps, on the beatings, on everything like that. But I thought that there was a, a bit of a piece missing in some of the ideas around uh, the assimilation of different minorities and the policy behind that that needed to be explored further. So that was my initial idea setting out. Hmm. Hmm. Christian, where, where did you go uh, for this reporting trip? I spent uh, about a week in Xinjiang. I mean, mostly it was between the, the capital. So uh, I went to Urumqi for about three days uh, because a lot of the family members of the uh, people I had spoken to had been based there, either at publishing houses or government ministries. So um, Galore's uh, brother, he was based at the um, Ethnic uh, Languages Committee, um, which was uh, you know the translation bureau that uh, published a lot of Uyghur Han dictionaries. And he, his ministry, uh, we heard, had been essentially closed down in the process, um, in the same process that he was arrested and along with some of his other uh, colleagues. So I wanted to go and check that out. And then I spent some time in Turpan and Aksu, mm. somewhat relatedly following some other strands, but also because there's, there's a, obviously a big difference between the smaller places and the, the larger cities. And then I went to Kashgar because traditionally that's kind of the, the core of the, the Uyghur culture and, and where a lot of the main scholars have been based for many years. And how much were you interfered with uh, in this trip? I was interfered with fairly constantly. I certainly was trailed continuously. There were people staying in the hotel, you know, in the, the room next to me. In fact, on the first day, I, I bumped into them uh, on the the elevator in the way down to the, the lobby. I think they were quite surprised. There seemed to be some problem with the lift and the doors opened again and he was just there speaking into his uh, mouthpiece and then got <laughs> in and then followed me out for half of the day um, and, and they would they would you know they would speak to every shopkeeper I spoke to they would speak to every uh, waiter in the restaurant where I got a bowl of noodles at one point there were some students in Aksu who asked to take a selfie I think they probably didn't see many foreigners and afterwards the police uh, or state security agents came up and asked them to delete those photos and question them about them so I mean it was it was very invasive uh, and they also would every time you got into a taxi or a DD uh, the individual would get a phone call uh, normally within about 10 minutes uh, wow. sometimes they would answer it on loudspeakers so you could 
hear the conversation. It would be a sort of brief introduction saying they're from the local Pai Chu Suor or Gong Anbu, the, the public security ministry or the, the local police station. And, and then they would ask where I was going to. If they liked the destination, then it was okay. If not, then I would be ejected uh, from the car. My God. <laughs> so yeah, ideal reporting uh, conditions. <laughs> so to to get at I, not the theory, but um, I suppose the policy behind all of this. In February this year, on this podcast, we talked to Tashi Robgay from George Washington University and Jim Mil- Milward from Georgetown about the so-called second-generation Minzu policy. They talk a bit about the Soviet origins of the original ethnic or nationality policy, where certain parts of the country are designated as autonomous, uh, autonomous republics or or blasts in the Soviet case. Um, But in China, it was autonomous regions or counties. So these counties get assigned to a certain nationality, Manchu, Uyghur, Dong, you know, Miao, uh, Salah, whatever. And they allegedly have control over this region. But there has apparently been a big change in this. And I think, you know, to get at some of the the sort of history behind this, I'd recommend readers to listen to that podcast with uh, uh, Tashi Robge and Jim Millwood. But that conversation was a little academic at times. Your piece on that, hand, Christian, hits us kind of in the face with a concrete example of the new assimilationist direction, which seems to be a really radical departure from the Soviet-style uh, policy. Can you talk about this new policy di- direction, where it grew out of, um, and you know what it means in Xinjiang today uh, in its implementation? Sure. I mean, one thing that probably worth stressing at the out point, which may fall into the the slightly academic camp, but in theory, there's been no official policy shift. In fact, when Xi last uh, talked, uh, Xi Jinping last talked clearly about this in 2014, he kind of push back against the idea that there needed to be a new generation. But it seems like even if officially there's been no shift, the campaigns uh, that have been implemented are very much taken in this uh, new generation of ethnic policy. And that new generation of ethnic policy is uh, a term used to describe a bunch of thinkers who around 2008-2009 reacted to violence uh, both in Tibet and in Xinjiang by calling for essentially the end to the attempt to have these autonomous regions and this attempt at uh, a diverse nation and said that instead there needed to be a real emphasis on national unity that didn't allow there to be a sense of local cultural identity to be developed amongst the different ethnic groups. And instead, they encouraged things like uh, ethnic intermingling. They encouraged the, the blending of different ethnicities. It was very much a move away from trying to ensure that different groups were kept separate instead to emphasize the national identity, the so-called state race. And two of the main voices that were proponents of this, uh, which I mentioned in the piece, were uh, Hu Lianhe and Huang Gang. Hu Lianhe was a United uh, Front Work Department official. Huang Gang is at Tsinghua University uh, in the, the China Studies Department. And they very much were on the perhaps most extreme end of the spectrum, people calling for a new ethnic policy. Um, and, and they thought that the violence that had come out uh, in you know, the spring of 2008 in Tibet and then the, the July 5th uh, riots 2009 in uh, Urumqi could very much be tied to the failure of this original policy, which had tried to give the different ethnic groups, a certain degree of autonomy, although obviously not very much, mm-hmm. um, but also gave them some preferential policies in terms of you know, additional points on the university entrance exams, some tax breaks, some uh, res- lighter restrictions in terms of family um, planning and whatnot. family planning policies, all those sorts of things. They, they believe that the, these kinds of attempts had instead of 
creating, I guess, the desired sense of gratitude toward the state and instead created great attentions. They saw that as being the fault. And so they said instead we should treat everyone equally. But by equally, I think they meant that the state comes first. And that's why they came up with the idea of a, a, a guozu, a, a state race. So that, that's the word that you've been translating as a state race. But it's not only the state comes first, is it? I mean, it's, it's also Han culture comes first, really. I mean, you've documented how Uyghur bookstores, uh, you know, bookstores are em- have been emptied of Uyghur books. Uh, Uyghur language signs are being torn down. It's It seems to have become a very specific policy to suppress any kind of expression of right. Uyghur culture. I guess, and that's what I really wanted to ask you about, Christian, is uh, so how does this go from something that's just sort of talked about theoretically by people, you didn't mention them in your piece, but, you know, the, the, the progenitor of this idea, we've been talking about this for almost a decade before, you know, uh, Xi Jinping came into office, uh, was this guy named Ma Rong. Uh, we talked about him a little bit on that, that February show with Jim Millward and with Tashi. Uh, but I guess I'm curious about how these ideas actually gain currency. I mean, how do these social scientists manage to attract the attention of actual policymakers? Was it like that there was a broader conversation in, in uh, you know, a, pu- a public conversation about this that, that drew people in who actually work on and implement uh, minority policy? Or uh, what do you know about how this actually went from theory to practice? I mean, are, are we privy, for instance, to any discussions that took place specifically addressing Minzu policy, or are they in deep denial about that? Yeah, there was a fairly open debate for a number of years um, from uh, around when these articles started coming out um, after the violence. Obviously, Marong predates this, uh, but the, the real flurry uh, was uh, starting from around 2010 through to probably 2012, 2013. Uh, and there was a very... Uh, public debate which spanned between academia and then also into uh, government officials the you know the united front work department official uh he kind of weighed into this and seemed to side somewhat with the the second generation policy advocates there was also outside of the kind of more academic debate there's kind of a rising sentiment uh, against uh, Islam that was sort of spreading uh, across China. I mean, I think July 5th, the riots there seemed to spark uh, a lot of concerns, which had rose in the, in the years since. Um, and, and that anti-Islamic sentiment, which I think has been documented by a, a number of Different scholars uh, and also, you know, people like Martin Jie, who you've had on, who who talks about this group of of Marxists uh, who kind of stoked this all online. Uh, and I think those things kind of they combined together to to give this you know sense that some change needed to happen. Right. Uh, and then in terms of the specific policies, you can you can track fairly closely between specific initiatives suggested by people like Marong and actual uh, initiatives that happen on the ground. So one thing that Marong also talked about was that we shouldn't call Mandarin Chinese Hanyu, it should be called uh, Guoyu, the national language, because you don't want to emphasize that the language spoken by the Han is different from the language spoken um, by the Uyghurs. It should be that the sort of the, the the Han Chinese language, Mandarin Chinese, kind of floats above them all as the national language. And if you look at policy documents now um, in, in Xinjiang and other regions, that that has been that shift. The, the use of Hanyu is is diminished, and instead it's it's all Guoyu. Uh, other things, you know, ethnic intermingling was another big theme of this second. So, so yeah. are they? Sorry, Christian, to interrupt. Are they? Are they saying Guoyu or Putonghua? Uh, Guoyu. They're actually saying Guoyu now. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. That's interesting because I mean, traditionally in the mainland, Putonghua is what you say. Guoyu is something that Hong Kongers and and Taiwanese uh, use. Fascinating. Anyway, I'm sorry. Do go on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's just one part of it. Right? So it's it's. Uh, right so it's the you know the the shared the shared national language and, and the policy documents now and in fact in the schooling system the emphasis is on that national language 
instead of the um, idea of there being you know multiple languages that were kind of on an equal status. Uh, another thing was the intermingling. So there was a lot of focus on the fact that there had been a failure for this to naturally happen for the different minorities, the, the Han and the Uyghur, Kazakhs, etc., to all kind of gradually intermingle. And so instead, the, this uh, was forced upon them and they created uh, unity villages, which um, <laughs> you can you can now go visit in Xinjiang and um, you know, that's sort of rows of pristine houses and very happy Uyghur and Han living next to each other, certainly on the propaganda tours anyway. Even in encouraging intermarriage even, right? They were, they, they, when did that start, the actual encouragement of Han and Uyghur intermarriage? Yeah, I mean, uh, these things have all been around for a while, but there seems to have been a, a ramping up in, in recent years. I mean, you see often it's kind of a local level initiative. There'll be some directive or some official um, you know, state media that covers you know, a particular initiative that encourages uh, intermarriage. The, the, there are a lot of these uh, specific things going on. I mean, within the piece, I mostly focused on language and education in particular, uh, partly because there are just so many of these different initiatives uh, ongoing simultaneously. Right. But my understanding is that a large number of things that were suggested on an academic level are now being implemented uh, practically uh, in Xinjiang. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you specifically about the, this language component of it. Uh, so, I mean, your piece, uh, you have these the officials who you do talk to are, you know, they flatly deny that there's been any connection between this discussion around second generation Minzu policy and what's happening now in, in Xinjiang. And as you said, Xi Jinping, you know, is is in denial about it as well. Uh, but, you know, you you present some pretty good evidence. Um, for example, in, in this list of intellectuals that um, Weli Ayup, there's this Uyghur guy in exile in France, this list that he's put together, uh, that is actually the list where uh, your protagonist, Golroy Askar, the woman you talked to in Virginia, where she discovers that her brother, the dictionary translator, is actually now in a camp that he's been sent there. Can you talk about that list? I, I think you, you said something like that there was a, that a third of the people on it were directly involved in, in Uyghur language book publication. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, well, it's uh, even more than that. It seems to be that about a third of the people uh, on Abdelveli's list were specifically involved in this one case. Oh, wow. Um, which, in a, in a way, is part of the, the core of uh, my piece to an extent. It, it's that there were a series of revisions to the Uyghur language textbooks used in Xinjiang throughout the, the 2000s. I think it was 2006 and then 2009 were the years they were published, but this began around 2002. And this process pulled in, you know, the vast majority of the a fairly small group of uh, Uyghur intellectuals who came in, uh, were asked by the state who was in, in the process of pushing out bilingual uh, education reforms. They were asked to renew the Uyghur language textbooks and when they did this, the uh, attempt that they made was to increase the number of original Uyghur sources within the textbooks uh, in the hope that this would you know, essentially help preserve the culture. So they wrote some things themselves. And I spoke to one individual who had actually been involved in the process uh, who had written a number of essays, um, Eset Suleiman, uh, who now works for RFA. Um, and then they would also try and find, you know, historic uh, texts, poems, things like that, uh, in the hope that these books would instill a sense of uh, Uyghur cultural identity in the younger generation. Mm. Uh, and then around 2014, there began to be a, a lot of uh, an investigation into these textbooks, which were increasingly deemed to be uh, separatist. Uh, and then around 2016, uh, they began arresting the individuals involved, including the father of Kamal Turk, um, Yalkun, who is another person uh, in, mentioned in my piece. Uh, Christian, it seems that the authorities have really decided um, that Uyghur culture is an enemy uh, and that the only way to prevent any kind of 
terrorist activity is to eliminate Uyghur culture. Uh, is that what it's got to, do you think? So it certainly uh, seems that way from the the main kind of evidence that I use to try and understand the Chinese mindset within the piece, which is this documentary produced by the Jiwei, uh, the, the Disciplinary Inspection Committee in Xinjiang. Uh, and they created this precautionary documentary about the case, which is then showed to education officials and to teachers, um, kind of warning them against it. Uh, and we managed to get hold of a recording of this. It hasn't been released publicly. Right. Uh, but within that, you can uh, see that the things that they are talking about as being the reasons for these jail sentences, which include life sentences in the case of Yalkun uh, Rozi, the, the father of, of Kamal Turk, it was um, 15 years for inciting subversion. The actual things that they are accused of, it's things like the percentage of content, which was from Uyghur sources versus mainstream Chinese cultural sources. Uh, so the legislation that is cited, which I haven't been able to find, it m might be out there, says that apparently if it's a minority language textbook, it only uh, is allowed to have 30% local language sources. And these books had 60%. Therefore, that somehow equals uh, subversion. Uh, it also talks about pan-Turkism, pan-Islam, these sort of boogeymen, um, which are seen to be uh, inciting separatism within Xinjiang. Christian, was the arrest of the, the really prominent Uyghur intellectual Ilham Tolkti in any way connected to this? So I did look into that and it seems no. It seems like his case was distinct and somewhat predated this. Uh. Uh, but, you know, it, I think it was more that at that time um, they began to become particularly aware of this problem. I mean, starting almost with uh, Abdeveli's case. So uh, Abdeveli tried to promote Uyghur language through private schools. Um, the mother tongue language movement is is how he talks about it, uh, and it was it was you know phenomenally popular amongst Uyghur sort of upper class, uh, middle class sort of intellectual families who wanted their children to really have a good grasp of their language and to kind of take it beyond what the state-provided schooling system seemed to allow. Uh, and then he was arrested in 2013. And in that process, there started to be this discussion about how dangerous is it to promote Uyghur language. And one of the more hardline party school commentators sort of said about his movement that it was, you know, the fourth evil force. You know, they talk about the three evil forces of um, religious extremism, <laughs> separatism, um, I'm blanking on Terrorism. the third. Thank you. Yes. Uh, and and so then the, the fourth one apparently was promoting, uh, you know, the indigenous language. So I, I think that these things are all, all related. There was this gradual accumulation of concern within the Chinese state about, you know, Uyghur education. Uh, and then that was just compounded by the, the people's war on terror and the, these shifts that were happening as a result of the academic debate uh, that have been going on since the since 2008, really. So to turn from the oppressed to the oppressors, uh, another important character in the story is Chen Changguo, who is probably familiar to many of our listeners. Uh, but just in case, can you ID him and tell us about what he did when he ran Tibet and what he added to his repertoire of repression when he moved north to Xinjiang? Sure. Chen Jingguo is the party secretary of Xinjiang and has been so since uh, 2016. Uh, and previously, he was in Tibet for a five-year stint uh, where he developed a, a series of security measures. Um, largely, it's uh, around a sort of militarization um, of... Uh, well, essentially the whole, the whole region, but uh, particularly uh, large cities where there would be these grid policing systems installed, where you would have um, what are called convenience police stations uh, on every block, 
Uh, also, there would be uh, systems of sort of mutual reporting where different households were assigned the responsibility of keeping watch on other households within their neighborhood and uh, were encouraged to report upon their neighbors uh, and people within their workplaces and things like that. And then when uh, Chen moved to Xinjiang, uh, the main innovation was the development of the uh, transformation through education uh, camps, you know, more often known as re-education camps. Uh, and this is the system that uh, he expanded massively. There were already some re-education camps uh, in existence beforehand, but the scale uh, since his arrival um, I mean, is just ballooned. Uh, and there's obviously been some fantastic reporting around that, the work of um, independent uh, German researcher Adrian Zenz mm-hmm. uh, and others who have gone through procurement documents to show what's being bought for these facilities. It's things like handcuffs, barbed wire, and then also just to show how large they are through satellite imagery. You know, I've seen a couple of these facilities myself on my most recent uh, trip. And I mean, they, they go you know, driving past them, um, it's minutes before you get from one end to the other, and there are there are guard towers. You know, these are sizable facilities, certainly in the same scale as some of the the largest prisons um, you would find in other areas of the country. So China was trying to represent that it was ramping this down, and we'd been hearing a lot of rumors about this. But Chris Buckley from the Times went out to Xinjiang to try to investigate this and did not come up with any evidence that there has been any sort of de-escalation. What was your sense of this? Did you see any evidence that they're starting maybe to reduce the number of the incarcerated? Yeah, I am a bit of a contrarian on this point. I'm not sure they meant to convey that they were ramping things down the comments made uh, by the the deputy governor he was talking about how the people held in camps had been coming and going regularly and that he said uh, you know that uh, Duoshu had returned to society And it's really unclear to me whether he meant, well, some people have been let out for weekends and then they go back in again, which we know from, um, from speaking to people who have been able to, to keep in contact with relatives. You know, that does happen. People are often let out for short periods, uh, but then they have to return again afterwards. So I don't have any sense that there is a ramping down and and certainly nothing from my reporting suggested that that was actually happening. So Christian, is it your sense that this policy of assimilation is so far limited to Xinjiang and to the Uyghurs? I mean, I don't get the the sense at all that it's been implemented in Tibet. I don't know about other regions, Inner Mongolia, or, or for that matter, Ningxia with the Hui. Uh, any any sense of that at all? Uh, the full extent of the, the the campaign that's happening in Xinjiang. Well, not the camps and everything. More just the push to assimilation. Yeah, well, there's, so there are parts of it, right? There are parts of it that clearly are um, being implemented elsewhere. I mean, part of this is about the government's approach to religion, right? I mean, obviously part of the assimilation process is the the dislike of uh, the religious aspect of Uyghur identity. Um, So there have been renewed restrictions on various kinds of religious gathering, on teaching um, children about religion in in other areas of the country. Uh, There also seem to be more restrictions on religious schools. Uh, That certainly seems to be more widespread. Um, But so far, there doesn't seem to be any evidence that uh, anything like as complete uh, has been applied in other places uh, like in Mongolia or Ninxia or anywhere else. Um, Christian, uh, Article 4 of the Chinese Constitution says that the state protects the lawful rights and interests of the minority nationalities and upholds and develops a relationship of equality, unity, and mutual assistance amongst all of China's nationalities. Um, Are are you aware of... That was from memory, of course, right? Uh, Yes, that was completely from memory, (laughs) because I've memorized the uh, Chinese constitution, because when I quote it to cops who arrest me, it's very useful in um, uh, offending them off, (laughs) because they're in awe of it. It's no Um, no use at all. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Kristen, I mean, uh, uh, have you, in your 
your research encountered any calls or efforts to change the language in the constitution with regards to uh, minority policy? Uh, no. And I mean, I think for a lot of these things, there is a, uh, a real desire on the part of the party to uh, continue to pay lip service to the idea of being the champion of um, minority rights. I mean, clearly that is what is talked about uh, through all government propaganda and you see it in billboards all over Xinjiang about how Xi Jinping cares about the rights of the individual minorities and about uh, fostering you know, ethnic unity, uh, how that will lead to one great big family nationally. So I think for a lot of these things, as with the actual official denial that there's a policy shift itself, there's this desire both to hold on to the original language um, while also tweaking things, um, well, more than tweaking, shifting things very significantly on the ground. Uh, and it's, I think, the same for things like the language within the constitution, uh, also the you know, continuation of using the language of autonomous regions while at the same time pushing this agenda of forced assimilation. I, I keep wondering, I can't help but wonder, I mean, whether it's Chen Guo, you know, as he's pushing this massive program of Hanification, you know, of, of assimilation, whether he's studying the history of the United States during the, the, the late 19th and early 20th centuries, um, you know, when, I don't know if you've read about about that period, but the methods that, that white Americans used, like removing children uh, from their families and, and bringing them up in these boarding schools, not allowing the use of indigenous languages, uh, the, there are definitely some parallels. I guess these days, I mean, unless you're one of these alt-right types who think that nations, you know, ought to strive to become just these pure ethnostates, I mean, you're going to look at this kind of, of thing as completely barbaric. Well, at least I hope you do. But do you have any sense of whether Beijing may be looking to other examples of this kind of forced assimilation, you know, in, to a language, you know, in particular from China's own past or, or from elsewhere in the world? I mean... This kind of thing happened a lot, like in, in the 19th century, especially when, when projects for creating nation states were underway in many parts of the world. Uh, you had Great Britain, you know, the way that the Welsh were treated you know, for a very long time. Of course, in, in Ireland, you know, between Acts of Union in 1800 and, and Home Rule. Uh, in, in Italy, you had it, you know, where you had all these independent uh, city states and, and, and territories that became Italy they spoke completely different languages and, and became Italian. In France, even, you had to impose sort of this Parisian standard French on the country. I mean, I can imagine Chinese people arguing that, that, that a melting pot is somehow, you know, more just than a system that would segregate different minorities, you know, physically. And, and disadvantage them, not having the advantage of language. I mean, that's probably the argument that they make. Um, how do they make their case? Yeah, well, I mean, the uh, the second generation Minzu policy advocates uh, within academia, they very much draw their inspiration from historical examples, uh, largely from the West. Uh, and the suggestion is that the perhaps the best aspects of what has happened in places like our own countries is that um, that there hasn't been this distinction between the the different ethnic groups. So if you look at Marong's arguments, I mean, he was always about depoliticizing, which essentially equates to getting rid of the distinctions between the different groups. So you would, uh, you know, one of his suggestions was get rid of the, the different minority identifier with on your ID card, which was something which at one stage looked like the, the authorities, um, you know, within the United Front were also leaning towards, but obviously it hasn't happened now. But these arguments are often drawn from looking at our experience in the West. But the conclusion that seems to be drawn is that you know, that you need to have a stronger, more united state identity rather than that you need to try better to uh, encourage diversity. I mean, within the UK, there was for a long time talk of having a, um, a more kind of multi-ethnic society, multicultural society, um, you know, and largely that was thought to have failed 
and to have not achieved its goals and you know they draw on failures like that as as a way of pushing for something that's you know more extreme rather than something which does more to try and preserve the individual cultural and uh, and language of the of the different uh, ethnic groups well i mean it feels like they're they're just too late to do this now i mean Things have changed. Value systems have completely changed. I mean, the, this whole salad bowl metaphor, at least in, in the U.S. for sure, has won out over the, the melting pot metaphor. Um, but it wasn't that long ago. I mean, I remember in the 70s when I was growing up as a kid in the U.S. on Saturday mornings, they, they ran these these cartoons, these things called um, Schoolhouse Rock. I don't know if you, you this is this thing that Generation X kids like to, to remember, but one of them was called The Great American Melting Pot. Uh, if you look for it, it's, it's on YouTube. I, I watched it last night when I was just, you know, prepping for this. Uh, the, 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 the lyrics, part of the lyrics go, you know, lovely Lady Liberty with her book of recipes and the finest one she's got. The Great American Melting Pot, and then you know, in the in the video, you just see these, this recipe book which lists all these ingredients. You know, Armenians, Africans, English, Dutch, Italians, Poles, Chinese, Irish, Germans, Puerto Ricans. You, you get the idea. And it was the multiculturalism of the day. And then they all got dumped into this melting pot. Um, <laughs> it's 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 it feels like you know that is is extremely unwoke these days to to, to call for that you know melting pot to this this sort of abandonment of individual cultural identities to this, you know, one unified nation state identity, which, you know, they, they, the grandma in that, you know, waves an American flag, but has a kiss me, I'm Polish sticker on her sweater. But still, I feel like I, I kind of get how, how China sort of feels like, Hey, you know, Mazzini and Garibaldi did this in Italy. Uh, and, and, you know, that's what we call Italy these days. Uh, I mean, China keeps just finding itself, wanting to do these things that the West did in order to get where it was, but decades or even a century you know, later, um, after the West has declared these things to be unacceptable, I'm thinking about like, you know, environmentalism, like burning tons of hydrocarbons. Hey, the West did that. Can't we do that too? Well, no, n- now we can't. It's, it's from the Chinese perspective, I understand the kind of frustration at the tut-tutting that we, we showed to this idea. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the the criticism of what's happening now in in Xinjiang, I mean, very much comes from this sense of look, we made these mistakes. We don't want you know China to make the same mistakes. Uh, and, and you know, if you look at the the use of the term cultural genocide, uh, which you know is becoming increasingly popular to describe what's happening in Xinjiang, some people disagree and say, well, China's trying to preserve some aspects of the culture, like the food and the dance and the what have you. Um, so they prefer re-engineering or remolding. Um, but others, you know, if you look back to where uh, the term cultural genocide was originally used, it was normally to describe things like the separation of children from the indigenous group and kind of bringing them into the majority group um, as a way of forcibly assimilating them. Well, you can see very clear parallels there to the the program, um, like the programs where the children of people held in camps are being sent to these um, essentially orphanages um, uh, and then are in a fully Han environment, speaking Mandarin the whole time. Right. Um, so there's definitely those echoes. Emily Emily Fung wrote about that, right? She did. Yeah. She she um, was the first one to write about the, the these orphanages, uh, and then you know, as time's gone on, we've come to understand more about how this is very much part of uh, you know a, a region wide system that is being used. Uh, it seems to have been quite hastily built up in order to deal with the result of putting you know, a vast portion of the, the population uh, into either detention or into jails. Christian, uh, this is all uh, very traumatic, but let's uh, traumatize ourselves a little more and come back to the family at the center of the story. Can you tell us what you've been able to learn about what happened to them, to Ms. Asqua, her nephews and her brother-in-law? And how typical has their experience been? Uh, so the three individuals, uh, Ekram, Bekram, who are the two nephews of Gilroy, and then her brother, uh, Husajan, um, as far as I know from the last time I spoke to Gilroy, there it hasn't been any change. They are all, um, well, two of them jailed, and one who is being held in the camp, that's, that's 
uh, Bahram. The situation seems to have been that they were originally, in the case of the two nephews, um, essentially ratted out for being too religious by a um, a friend, a high school friend. Uh, one of the things that seems to have happened fairly early on in this campaign is that people who were detained were encouraged to talk about the uh, people that they knew who might be breaking these new regulations about you know what people are allowed to do in terms of religious practice or in in terms of um, you know holding intellectual events or holding certain kinds of books in their home and if you were to give up certain names and potentially your own sentence or you know, your period of time you spend in the camps could be lighter uh, so it seems that the the nephews were originally ratted out by this process and then when they searched their home they found that they had a, an mb3 player with recitations of the quran which be considered contraband under the new rules um, that have been put in place hmm. uh, and then her brother um, seems to have been arrested along with six other members of his department which is a fairly small translation department and as far as we know they're they're all still in jail one of the difficulties with reporting on these cases is that there is essentially zero clarity coming out of the policing system in Xinjiang, which is perhaps somewhat ironic given the amount of data that they collect from the populace and, and from any journalists they can get their hands on while they're there. Um, so you, you can't really find any public records of these cases. You can uh, visit, as I attempted to do, the places of work, but you, you tend to just get kind of uh, taken on a wild goose chase. So the best uh, you tend to be able to get is if there's something that's posted online, if there's some sort of official confirmation of the case, uh, and then the occasional things that are smuggled out of Xinjiang. And so in this case, uh, Gilroy was able to get confirmation of both the arrests and the detention of her nephew. Yeah, that's uh, that's really depressing. I hope that uh, we can hear some better news about that family but uh, Christian, it's been just such a pleasure to finally have you on the show. I definitely look forward to having you back. So keep us posted about what you're writing so we can time it. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's get on to recommendations. First, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. If you like what we're doing with Seneca and with the other shows in our network, uh, the very best way you can support our work is to subscribe to SubChina's daily newsletter. This thing is just chock full of great reads on China delivered to your inbox every weekday. Jeremy, Lucas, Zhao Yun, they just do a phenomenal job. They really work their butts off to bring you this amazing product, and it is definitely great value for money. So sign up, spread the word. Uh, I also want to make sure that you're all subscribed to our latest show. We're very proud of it. It's called Strangers in China. Uh, man, there are some terrific episodes of that one that are going to be coming up soon. Okay, uh, on to recommendations. Jeremy, you're up first. Uh, yeah, I'd like to recommend a podcast. It's uh, the Planet Money podcast, uh, an NPR show. Uh, and they have a recent one called The Working Tapes of Studs Terkel. Uh, oh, great. The um, famous American broadcaster and journalist who I only found out about and got to uh, discover the joys of his work after I moved here. But in the 1970s, he went around the country interviewing people about their jobs. Uh, and it's fascinating because, um, I mean, some of the jobs don't exist anymore, like telephone operator. Um, right. But he's a great interviewer and he gets, you know, people at their ease and, and he gets them to describe what they do. And it's sort of like a, an audio time capsule. Um, so the working tapes of Studs Terkel Planet Money podcast. I've heard a bunch of those. Those are amazing. I mean, he is just he is just a he was an American treasure. Absolutely, uh, great recommendation, Jeremy Christian. What do you have for us? Sure. So I have a couple of things. Uh, first is a book by my partner Caroline Can, and it's called Under Red Skies. It came out earlier this year. Uh, it's a memoir and family history. Uh, of course, I'm biased, but I think it does a fantastic job of taking you through the kind of life of a, a small town family uh, as they kind of move up through the uh, dizzying changes of the last 30 years uh, of 
uh, China's development from the village into the small towns through things like the Falun Gong crackdown to beginning to understand things, events like Tiananmen, but from a fairly different perspective from the ones that we often tend to hear more from, you know, perhaps the more liberal elites. And um, she does a great job of walking that line between just making making a, a, a picture of these people that uh, often we tend to forget about when um, when we're thinking about China's development. And then a second one is the work of Darren Byler, who is um, at uh, Washington University yes. <laughs> and does... Um, Fantastic. Uh, University of Washington. Yes, thank you, thank you. Uh, and he does um, just really fantastic writing on uh, Uyghur culture. He has a blog called Living Otherwise, The Art of Central Life in Asia. And then he also writes a column for SubChina. Um, but everything he does, I really think is fantastic. He, he recently did a piece on the the use of forced labor, people who come out of the camps and then uh, uh, you know, being funneled into these factories. Very detailed, very readable, really kind of gets the heart of these issues. So I very much recommend his work. Yeah, we're incredibly proud to have his, him as one of our, our columnists. Uh, he's just great. Absolutely. Could not second that with more enthusiasm. Darren Byler and his work. Uh, my recommendation uh, is for a documentary film called The Brink. It's a, a brand new documentary by Alison Clayman, who many of you might know from her, her very good documentary about Ai Weiwei, the, uh, the artist. The Brink, uh, it's, it's just a 90-minute documentary where she gets incredible access to Bannon, just following him around. You know, while he's just cussing his head off on phone calls, dressing people down, meeting with just this absolute rogues gallery of, you know, Nigel Farage, people, you know, who are close to Marine Le Pen, other rightists from the Netherlands and going around just sort of pushing this, ironically, global, anti-globalist uh populist nativist revolution of his. Uh, there are some spectacularly weird uh, cameos by the likes of Miles Kwok, Kuo Nguye, uh, who Clayman actually gets to follow around in his Sherry Netherlands penthouse apartment next to Central Park. It's it's just an amazing documentary. I think my, a friend of mine, Ada, uh, suggested that Bannon must have just underestimated her, just must have just seen her as a little girl, did not take her seriously, but this thing is pretty devastating. You should definitely see it. Uh, Jeremy, have you seen that yet? Uh, no, I have not. Uh, I have been meaning to, though. Oh, you'll you'll really enjoy it. Yeah, I, I, it's but it's kind of one of those things like it, it's like watching Trump on on television. It, it fills me with revulsion, right? And um, it should. Even if I think I should know about it, I sometimes I, I just cannot bring myself to do it because I don't want to vomit on my new carpet. I, I know the feeling well. Yeah, well, just do it on an empty stomach. <laughs> um, anyway, Christian, man, what a, what a what an honor and a pleasure to have you on, and uh, great work. That piece was just just terrific. I'm so glad that you you could make the time. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. Thank you, Christian. Jeremy, as always, really good to talk to you. Uh, indeed. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out the other podcasts in our network, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, which I must say has just been spectacularly good recently, plus two shows focused on women, New Voices and Ta for Ta, as well as the Middle Earth Podcast on the culture industry in China. And that last but certainly not least, our brand new family member, Strangers in China. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week. Take care.